and start. Okay, hey, welcome everyone. My name is Aaron Smith. I'm the CEO of the Energy and Environmental Building Alliance. And I'm pleased today uh, to be joined in our extended webinar by Mandy Lee. Mandy is the program manager for the Centering Equity in Sustainable Building Sector program at NAACP. Uh, Nancy and I, or excuse me, Mandy and I were introduced to each other at the Workforce Accelerator program, I believe, Mandy. Uh, Mandy actually comes from a uh, past at USGBC as well and is very adept at sustainability. Uh, next, we'll be joined by uh, Daphne Rose Sanchez. And Daphne is the founder of Kinetic Communities Consulting and is a proud New York native. I also, uh, I lived in Connecticut the last nine and a half years. So Daphne, sometimes I tell people, it's just easier to say you're from New York. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I was from Connecticut. So I, I also claim New York as, uh, as part of my home. So we love, absolutely love New York. But uh, KC3 leverages partnerships and resources to help close the gap between affordable housing and the energy efficiency industry for diverse New York communities. So we're very pleased to have her with us today. And then last but not least, we're joined by Lonnie Feimster. Lonnie is the president of the Reno Sparks branch of the NAACP and former energy inspector. So we have a lot of uh, energy inspectors on the phone today, which is great. He's also known as Solar Man, so we're excited to dive into uh, hearing more about that. And uh, he was telling us a little bit before as we warmed up here today that uh, he built his own passive house uh, that provides 100% electric, low consumption, and comfortable place for work and play for three generations. So really excited for you to share that with us, Lonnie. And Lonnie and Daphne share a passion for supporting black and brown communities to understand the human cost of energy, save money, feel safe, and live in a cleaner environment. Amen. They will share a call to action through stories and lessons for building professionals to design projects, policies, and programs first and foremost, for people and for justice. So I could not be more excited to welcome you all today and uh, share you with the EVA community. So Mandy, I'll turn it over to you for a screen share and then just a little housekeeping. You can ask questions in the Q&A section at the bottom of your screen. You could also ask in the chat section and I'll try to curate those throughout and ask them to our speakers. So Mandy, take it away, please. All right, thanks so much, Aaron, and thank you to everyone who's joining. I, I always wanna start off whenever we are doing webinars with saying that um, my team at the NAACP, the Environmental and Climate Justice team, thinks about this time in, in our country and in our lives as not so much working from home, but being at home during a crisis, trying to work. Uh, so really appreciate everyone taking some time to, to tune in and to be present for this conversation, um, and especially to our presenters, Lonnie and Daphne, um, who are just some of the most fantastic members of, of one of our new initiatives. So uh, as Aaron mentioned, I help facilitate an initiative called Centering Equity in the Sustainable Building Sector Initiative. And this was, this was started uh, just about two years ago um, we are comprised of NAACP members who are the primary base of everything that the NAACP does from around the country and from a ton of different background areas and disciplines. Uh, and then in addition, this initiative is unique because it brings in external partners uh, to be our allies in 
talking about equity and justice in design and development. Um, and this is a photo from a retreat that we had uh, last fall, um, which was sadly the last time we were able to see each other in person, um, but hopefully we'll do so again soon. And so when we think about sustainable building, the way we've been defining it is as um, a process that regenerates, advances, and sustains the social, cultural, economic, and environmental health of places and communities. Um, and the NAACP has a long history since our founding back in the early 1900s of fighting for the well-being of black and brown communities. Uh, and we think the design of neighborhoods is one of the most fundamental ways in which we can, we can uphold the well-being of, of these communities. Um, we envision a future in which we are proactively enforcing sustainable building policies and practices that result in equitable access, opportunities, treatment, impacts, and outcomes for all, regardless of identity or status. Uh, all too often, um, communities that are low income, that are on the front lines of the impacts of the climate crisis, um, and are otherwise minoritized in different ways, are bearing the brunt of unhealthy buildings, of energy inefficiency and the undue financial costs that come with that, of um, being unable to recover from major disasters, whether that's natural disasters like hurricanes or economic ones, like the recession that we're currently seeing during this pandemic. Um, and we, we not only wanna mitigate some of these harms, we also wanna mobilize and galvanize our communities um, along with sustainable building advocates to create change across, across the industry and within our, within our neighborhoods. Uh, a quote that I really love to share came from the very first convening of this initiative. And it asked the question, you know, if we are pursuing sustainability without equity, what does that mean? And what we heard was that if we aren't centering equity in our work, then we're just sustaining inequity. We're sustaining uh, disparate outcomes that mostly benefit uh, white and affluent people affluent communities rather than actually reaching those who have the most to gain from, from sustainable design and development. And so we want to get beyond green. When we talk about sustainability, we're talking about environmental justice, economic justice, and racial justice. Um, and I also just want to note that we do this in a lot of different ways. The, at the heart of the NAACP is policy advocacy. So we're working with NAACP branches across the country to think about how sustainability shows up in uh, affordable housing and in zoning and in comprehensive planning and beyond. Um, we are also trying to um, bring, a, bring about the next generation of professionals in the sustainable building sector. And that for us starts right at the beginning with childhood education and then all, all the way up to cultivating uh, the highest levels of leadership. Um, and then lastly, what, what we're going to be doing today, especially, is just talking about shifting the narrative and thinking about how we talk about green and sustainable buildings and how we make sure that every, in everything that we do, we have an equity first and a justice first approach. Uh, and overall, we want a just transition to, in particular, um, to 
homes that are livable and sustainable and healthy uh, for, for, for all, and in particular for those who have been harmed by development for so, so long. Um, and with that, I'm going to pass it over to, uh, to Lonnie, who is going to talk about the work that he's done both professionally and personally. Hello, everyone. Uh, can you hear me? That's good. Uh, I am a lot of things, uh, and I don't want to spend too much time on me, but uh, I'm uh, currently the president of the NAACP I, in Reno, uh, Sparks, Nevada. I've, I've been uh, president on, uh, for uh, off and on, treasurer, and many other jobs in the organization. It's become part of my life. And uh, uh, I learned the hard way about why my mother was so adamant about getting me involved with the uh, civil rights movement. Uh, uh, I got involved in architecture because I um, uh, worked for the utility as an energy inspector, uh, energy consultant, conservation consultant. I worked up at Lake Tahoe in the California district for Sierra Pacific Power Company. And, um, uh that's uh kind of the the professional background with the utility uh but i uh, developed an interest in uh, uh, real estate because the way you got into the utility business they had a one black person at a time policy in the utility business the president of the company told me uh once he said uh this is the last bastion of white anglo-saxon protestants and I don't think it's the last bastion, but certainly there were not a lot of black people there. And when you only allow one black at a time, it's a problem. The black lady wanted to leave. She wanted to go into real estate. So she called up my mother and said, get your son down here. So I, I, I came down. I, in a week, they had promoted me from junior clerk to meter reader. And, and then I became a customer service clerk, high bill complaint person. I, I worked through the energy embargoes of the 70s. Uh, I answered questions on why the bill was so high, and then I got into what we call uh, load research. <clears throat> That's understanding the market. It used to be marketing, but they couldn't use the term marketing, so they used load research. The customer is the load. The research is what we did to figure out who's going to move to Reno or Washoe County or the northern half of the state. What appliances are they going to buy and what time of day are they going to turn them on energy is this funny kind of thing it's kind of like magic but uh, the uh, uh, challenge is you have to know way ahead of time there's a long lead time to build a power plant and we had a forest fire once burned up the power lines to nevada and so the power company started building power plants so they didn't have to rely on pacific gas and electric to actually import electricity into Nevada. So I, I developed this um, interest in energy. I worked as an energy consultant. And I also, the African-American lady that got me on, got a real estate license, opened an office. So I started studying real estate also. That's how I ended up getting involved with real estate and becoming a real estate broker after I retired. Now, um, Part of the reason is, why did you build a passive solar home? Actually, it's a passive 
geo-coupled home. And we'll get into that in a minute, but why build, why not just buy a house? Well, part of the reason is the bank wouldn't lend us money. I had a job for about 20 years and my wife had three college degrees. She was a teacher. Uh, we applied for loans. They wouldn't give us loans. I found out later as a real estate agent why we couldn't get a loan. We couldn't get a loan because banks were notorious for redlining black people, putting codes, just like the uh, former real estate developer, Fred Trump and his son, Donald, used to discriminate against black people and they would code their lease applications to make sure they didn't move into their properties. So we were dealing with this in Northern Nevada, but uh, we're very frustrated. And an African-American architect convinced me to build a house, even though I didn't know how to build a house. I knew a lot about houses. I was inspecting houses. I was uh, by that time involved with the local uh, chapter of the American Institute of Architects. And, um, uh, but I had a, a, a Hispanic family that wanted to buy a house. So I, you know, I had my license. I was uh, in an office with a commercial broker and I uh, tried and get them a loan, but it wouldn't go through. And I called the head of the bank for Northern Nevada. His name was Rupert Ruiz. And I said, Rupert, my clients have been trying to get a loan and we can't get a loan. And the banks have this advisory group to try and help people of color get loans. But uh, I call them up time and time again. And then they said, oh, we finally found your client's paperwork. His loan officer had gone on vacation. And what they had done is they put his application in the Hispanic pile. Now, you're not supposed to have an Hispanic pile. I guess they put ours in the black pile. But the problem is, if you don't have access to capital, you can't own a home, you can't build a home. And these are the kind of hurdles that have kept me involved with the NAACP and why I'm so happy to be part of this environmental climate justice movement. So uh, enough about that. And, and just to give you a quick background, we had, um, I, I was like 12 children in our family. We had the habit of naming our houses. One of the first houses I remember, we lived in a normal house, but something happened financially, and we ended up in a little house we called the paper house. It was pretty much a tool shed with newspapers on the wall. And the reason we called it the paper house was because there's newspaper all over. There was no bathroom, there was no kitchen, and uh, half of the family had to live with my grandmother. But the, the problem, uh, was uh, you got to keep the wind from blowing through the house when you're basically living in a shed. Well, we moved out of there after a short time and moved to what we call the rat house. Now, I want to give you this background so you understand what you have to go through sometimes to get to where you need to be. And that is the rat house was so close to the stockyards and the railroad that um, we literally, there were mice everywhere. And I mean, the kids would run behind the mosquito truck just to get repellent on you so you'd be protected from the mosquitoes. That's why I'm not a billionaire today. Too much mosquito uh, repellent. And so we saved up enough money and eventually moved into the projects and I started school. And something happened at school that has to do with this house. I got on the Indian bus every day because I did not want to ride or go home with my sisters. I had four sisters at that time. And I built a good friendship with Native American families in the community and my parents had to come and get me off the reservation every day. 
They said, well, he's not black, he's not white, put him on the Indian bus. I thought it was a lot of fun. Little did I know years later that that tribe would come to me and ask for advice on how to design the energy efficiency in their housing subdivision. And because I was then at the utility and knew the president of the company, I was able to give them some care and education on designing their project like they took care of me when I was a child. Now, that's important because I knew the president of the company and I saved them over a half a million dollars getting their propane gas line installed. I designed all the specifications for their um, project. And when the developers and the planners wanted to throw out all the recommendations, the tribe said, no, we trust Mr. Feimster. We know him. That's part of, and that, that subdivision is only about two miles from where I live now. Now to talk about this passive solar home, that's how I got here. The bank wouldn't give us money, so we built a house. This is the entrance. The house is, this is the north side. I don't like north. I actually tried and build a triangle, uh, but it was a little challenging. So the architect that designed the house gave me a plan for a, after spending a year trying to build a big rectangle, he said, no, you'll go broke. That's too ugly. He gave me a nice plan. Uh, he loved long, skinny houses, and I liked a lot of windows. I had studied uh, passive solar energy. I worked up in Lake Tahoe. I saw a lot of uh, uh, architect design homes and, and advised customers in Lake Tahoe uh, for five years. And I found a builder that used to build at Tahoe that could build on a slope. Uh, we added on the, the north side. Uh, uh, actually, you see the driveway going into an underground garage. And on top of that, we put a living room. And on top of that, we put a new master bedroom. Then we had to go up four stories to get sunlight over the top roof of the second story. So I'll do anything to get light into the north side of the house. And, and uh, so we have a nice sunny master bedroom at, at the highest level of the house, even though the house is, even though it's on the, the, the north side. So then, uh, uh, let's go to the next slide i want to show the uh the south facing of the house uh this is where most of the solar energy comes from and, and rather than get into all the concepts of passive solar i call this geocouple for a reason uh, i met an architect up at lake tahoe named tom smith he he kind of pioneered research on double envelope houses you build a shell and then you build a shell around it and the sunlight comes in the south side of the house and it heats up and it goes over the top of the inner shell and as it gets cold it falls down into the crawl space but the sunlight sunlight drives the solar cycle so it's basically a house in a house and he went to europe once and he measured the temperature and found out that the whole time that he was uh uh, uh in europe the house never dropped below the ground temperature. So by causing this convection cycle, the, uh, um, the uh, house would couple with the earth and it would heat uh, the air uh, as it went through the crawl space up to warm enough temperatures, uh, even at Lake Tahoe, which is frigid, the, uh, 
the air would surround the building. He put temperature recorders in the house or whatever. So I essentially designed a house that has no fans, no mechanical equipment, uh, other than uh, um, the uh, fan on the, well, I didn't even have a range fan. I, I, we have a window in every house. So ventilation and bathrooms or whatever. And the building department claimed that uh, I didn't have enough heat to heat the house. Uh, the house originally was designed with a 40,000 BTU system, eight electric heaters, one in every room. And when it's 10 below zero, we were still comfortable. Uh, but the house was designed with two by six walls. Uh, I pressure filled all the walls and insulated the entire house myself to make sure it was well insulated. I, I had done a, quite a bit of work insulating homes for low income people in the past. And so what I uh, uh, was careful to do was to not only make sure the house was extremely well insulated, the, the ceilings were twice as much insulated as required by the code. Uh, this was part of my job with the utility to go out and advise builders uh, and uh, their crew on how to seal up the house and um, uh, how to make sure the uh, insulation was adequate and try and build to the current standards for the utility, which was much higher than the uh, um, code. And so uh, we put in high-tech windows. They were R4 windows, had a little problem with the manufacturers on some of the windows, but they were polyester film coated with heat mirror and uh, they uh, work and it's great when you have a lot of windows. We don't have a lot of curtains because we don't have neighbors and it, it, it really is very enjoyable to live in the house. Now, um, uh, uh, I air pressure tested the house with a, a blower door. I've scanned it with an infrared uh, uh, thermographic cameras. I took some classes on that and made sure that the house was um, um, tight and that I wanted to test it when it was frigid outside. So something interesting happened. All the nails in this house are uh, aluminum. And the aluminum kind of conducts heat very rapidly, but it's still, because of the insulation, wasn't a problem. But when you scan your house with the infrared camera and you have aluminum nails, it's like you have little dots of light all over your house. So, uh, but as far as construction, we used the high levels of construction. Uh, it was very carefully uh, 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 implemented in a way that I knew the walls were full. That's why I personally wanted to do it. I had seen what happens if you don't pressure fill walls with insulation. And then the whole house works on convection. The uh, cold air flows down to the bottom of the house in the, in the uh, evening. The warm air rises to the bedrooms at the top of the house. The sunlight comes in in the morning and warms. And we'll see the inside, uh, well, by the, uh, the windows on the south side, we'll see a big wall. Oh, sorry. Uh, my timer is off. I need, to get, I need to get a timer on this presentation because uh, <laughs> I don't want to run over, but, Anyway, we can go to the next slide. I want to just show a quick overview. We allowed a lot of space uh, for solar access. We put, uh, based on the architects, 
um, uh, um, instruction. We put some evergreens on the west side to block the, the, the wind, but all our deciduous trees are back far enough so we have a nice, real sunny area that sunlight comes into and drives the solar convection cycle. The house basically works on convection, similar to the geocouple house that Tom Smith had designed at the lake, but uh, we actually have a basement and uh, it's three steps down, but if it gets too cold, and we're gonna look on the inside in a, in, in a bit, uh, actually the, the, the air in the, in the basement rises and it keeps the lowest level from getting too cold. We have a lot of plants, no plants have ever died, but as you can see, the house is not too wide. We had to go up real high to get sunlight into the north side. We'll go to the next slide. That's a little closer shot of the windows at the very highest level of the house. Okay, next slide. Um, this is some of the seating areas in place. We wanted to make a lot of places for people to sit and barbecue. And our kids, I've got a sand pile over by the door. I've got my initials on my office door. The whole bottom section of the house has no heating system. Sunlight comes in and we'll see in a minute how many plants we have down there. But uh, uh, basically this house, we have an evaporative cooler that uses one fifth of the energy of air conditioning uses. This is a dry climate. By using what works in our climate, we have a very dry climate, so evaporative cooling works and it's only one fifth of the cost of air conditioning. My wife has a window air conditioner in her office because she claims she gets hot sometimes. I'm not gonna even get into that. We have a, another 4,000 cubic foot evaporative cooler on the other side of the house as backup. We've gone the entire summer with only half of the cooling system even installed. The other one I did a little maintenance on, but uh, I have a redundancy built in the house. But uh, uh, let's go to the next slide. Hey, Lonnie, a quick question is, uh, the basics of it, is it a passive home facing north-south and then are you using a foam insulation or a blown-in cellulose insulation? I uh, insulated the walls with pressure, uh, um, uh, okay, the, yeah, uh, with pressure field, uh, which was tricky. I had to get the code people to let me put the sheetrock up before I pressure fill the walls. But I, I had to do it myself because if you do not pressure fill correctly, you'll get too much settling in your walls. And uh, so I, uh, use cellulose insulation. I was okay. running a recycling company uh, for that. And what was the second question? Uh, no, I think that was it. It was a, it's a blown in cellulose. And then we do have another question. Uh, people really like your landscaping. Is that, did you do it yourself or have somebody else do it? I learned, I have a mountain behind me and two people use dry laid rock walls and that's the poor and the rich, the rich because they can afford it and the poor because they can't afford anything else. I personally built these two walls, my first two walls. Uh, the one big rock with a white object on it, I drug for a quarter mile from the other side of a mountain to get there. Cause I don't find a lot of square rocks, but this was, I've learned it, it's a hobby to build dry laid rock walls. Uh, and I studied the Romans and uh, some of the Incas and, and various stone builders around the, the world. And I was impressed with the Romans. 
but my architect friend said, well, the reasons the Roman stuff lasted is, well, some of you know, is if the house fell down and killed the owner's son, they would kill the architect's son. At least that's what I heard. So <laughs> these walls have withstood floods, backhoes running into them, and there's about two foot of uh, drain rock behind them. Uh, they, uh, and I, I really found out I enjoy rock work. So it's one of my hobbies now. Uh, so, looks great. all right, we can go in. So again, you can see how that goes in. You see how much space we have. We have uh, a track around the whole entire complex. Uh, so we have a running track. My son is having a house built, so he's living in an RV right there. He's hooked into my septic system. And uh, I had uh, like 14 members of the family living here for a short time in the past year. Uh, so the house is plenty big enough. Uh, but that's what happens when you grow up poor in a tool shed. And then you have the ability and the power to build your own house. Uh, my wife actually added on as the first child started to go to college. She wanted to add on, and I said, I don't care. It's real estate. It's, it's a good investment. But uh, uh, we have plenty of room. The trees are far back enough. They create a beautiful canopy uh, of shade. But we have kind of a desert to get from the house to the shade uh, in the summer. It's pretty hot in between, but these trees never block our sunlight. Uh, the, uh, the evergreen trees, I'd have put them back a few, but probably about eight to 10 feet further if I redid it because they are really growing big. They were only as tall as the pole when we first started. Okay, we'll go to the next uh, slide. Uh, these are some of the shade canopies that's created by these trees. There were no trees here when we moved in. It was just sagebrush and dirt. And so uh, I had to plant about 25, 26 trees and uh, everything's turned out real well. The landscape architect was well worth the money I didn't pay him because he was part of the landscape architectural advisory committee. So he came out and he said, no, nah, don't put this here, put that there. You probably don't want a tennis court. So I didn't put in a tennis court, we put in a basketball hoop. And we go to the next slide. This is a thing that uh, I did not really realize until we started going out to Paso Solar Homes the abundance of plants, it is there. I can't count the number of plants. I was about 60. Uh, I know I water them. When we started out, my children's had the job of watering the plants, but they, one went to college and the next one took over and then they went to college and the next one took over. Then he went to college. Now guess who waters the plants? Uh, this, go to the next slide. This is a mini, uh, actually, uh, it's kind of like the French Quarter. My wife's from New Orleans. She wanted to, New Orleans thing. So we put in wrought iron, a light post. And this particular window looks out in those trees. And we've had, uh, we've had uh, three groups of red-tailed hawks have uh, babies in the tree. Then the owls moved in. We have great horned owls. And we have videos of all of them, the, 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 the babies learning how to fly and growing up. And it's like you're living inside of a nature uh, uh, area. Uh, we, you don't see many uh, uh, great, uh, great horned owls and uh, um, red-tailed hawks, and now the crows have taken over. So that tree has really uh, served well. And then, of course, for those in the building, trade, architecture, design, you'll notice my laundry chute 
uh, below the plants. I had to have a laundry chute. Actually, there's another one that be in that column. And uh, I missed out when we first built the house. So I made sure when we added on that we put the laundry chute in. And if we can go to the next slide, I will show this is the dining room. Again, these plants are love this house. And, uh, and, and people say you should have a plant in a room. I think I have 20 plants in my office. The dining room, people are just amazed how many plants. But uh, this is one of the benefits. The, the, the environment is so nice inside the home. And because we don't have many curtains, uh, it, you don't feel like you're ever cooped up even when it's freezing outside. And if it's sunny and freezing, it's really nice because you don't even know it's cold. You can go outside and it can be 10 degrees. And uh, uh, so the real side benefit are the healthy environment you create with plants and, and uh, uh, so in, I didn't mean to be a horticulturalist or, or, or whatever, but uh, I just kept collecting plants and they just love it in there. So we can go to the next slide. Uh, this is one of the things that is really the essence of the home. I was able to design stairs. This is the longest stairway we have. Uh, one of the friends of mine who knew my grandmother when she was pregnant with my mother walked up this stairway when she was 95 years old. Her grandson was behind her, of course, and my mother walked up this stairway when she was 90 or 89. And I designed this home so we could live in it. And when we get older, the stairs would not be steep. I know code says you can build so much uh, rise and so much run on a stairway, but that's not comfortable. As you see, the sunlight comes in, it hits the solar wall what they call the Tron wall, is basically rocks from the other side of the mountain and some concrete we sat them on. This is a huge uh, uh, solar battery. It stores up energy. And, and at night, the cold air is falling down into this, down to the lower level. And the warmer air from this wall that's been energized by the sunlight uh, after traveling 93 million miles, it converts into infrared radiation and it heats the wall up and that rises to the bedroom we're comfortable. There's two inches of concrete at the top of these stairs uh, to help absorb heat. We put a lot of thermal mass in the home. And uh, of course, uh, uh, most of you probably understand the whole concepts of uh, convection currents, but this whole house basically works. There are no heating ducts, there are no cooling ducts, there are no ducts of any kind. And uh, it basically works on convection. The coldest air falls to the lowest level. And if I happen to be in my office, which is bottom of these stairs, I'll use an electric heater. But normally we don't heat the lower level of the house. No plant is ever frozen. And so this is uh, one of the big solar batteries. The rest are the floors. And I've got slabs of two inch concrete in several rooms that help to maintain the the, uh, uh, the, they're like a solar flywheel, the battery effect of uh, storing the solar energy. So we can go to the next slide. And this is outside my office. It, it's, I haven't built a greenhouse. We did facilitate having area to put solar panels on. We haven't done that yet, uh, but they are now building solar panels, Panasonic and Tesla 30 miles from my home. I plan on putting some up there because we still use energy. Now, if somebody wants to know what's the energy bill at this home, 
I don't know, much like when I studied real estate, I never figured out the return on investment on my real estate rental properties because I was too busy fixing stuff and renting the houses. And a lot of investors don't really analyze their own investments. I've never looked at the energy bill because sometimes we have 15 or more people at this house. We at times had 15 this year. But the issue is if there is sunlight, you don't need to pay for heat. Uh, cooling is very cheap and maybe I should analyze it, but uh, we have so many people coming in and out. This is a jump point for Burning Man. Uh, we have about 15, 20 people in our Burning Man camp uh, every year, which is an interesting story in itself. But uh, they, they all come here. But this is my greenhouse. The plants do well. It's basically vertical glass. No great science here. Uh, and then about three steps down, you're actually in the basement. And so that air is heated by the earth and it will come up here. And before anybody asks, I wanna let you know, I pioneered radon research in, in Nevada. The university, the state radiological department, the EPA, no one had radon information. I started testing homes because I knew it was an issue. My father died of lung cancer. They say this was the second largest cause of cancer. So I know someone may be interested in, well, what about radon issues? There's a lot of granite in Nevada and uh, can you get radon from the crawl space? I move so much air through that crawl space, it, the air changes when I'm moving air are tremendous. But I did test a home for radon and I've tested quite a few homes and I was told to lose the information when I was with the utility but I did a lot of research on this house. It wasn't thrown together and I had the, the luxury of having uh, mechanical engineers and other energy specialists uh, uh, help me, give me tips. Tom Smith actually came out to my house and borrowed my passive solar energy book. Um, and he was so well known and, and plus I had visited his house up in Lake Tahoe uh, because it was one of the pioneer passive solar homes. So uh, I, I don't know uh, if there's any questions now. I've covered a lot of stuff, but this is essentially the result of me caring about the people in my community, helping the Native American tribe that took care of me when I was a little child. I work with low-income families, and I found out one thing is very important when you work in uh, advising people on energy use. Most people don't know where their energy goes or why. You may have a low-income family that doesn't understand energy use, doesn't understand how much is water heating, how much is heating, how much is cooling, but you can go to their home. They may not be able to afford a contractor to come in and put in a high-efficiency uh, um, furnace, but if you give them the time and care to give them education, they're able to empower themselves. They can't all build a house like my house. And, and, and sometimes they don't have a tribe that can build a whole subdivision, but somebody has to tell those tribal members how to work the setback thermostat. I had to take the setback thermostat out of my mother's house because she was 89 and she couldn't get the doggone air conditioner or the heater to come on. It was too complicated. She didn't need that. She didn't go anywhere that needed to set the thermostat back, but it was a complicated technological solution 
to something that she didn't have a problem with. So I took out the sophisticated thermostat and put in a little round one that turns uh, air conditioning or heat. No problem. Uh, and and uh, I don't know how much time I have left, but I wanna, I wanna mention one thing. There was another lady, and this is important. She was an older lady, lived in a mobile home. She had a thermostat. And some of you know the, the, the company Day and Night, they make thermostats. The poor lady was felt, uh, she was really hot at night and, and it was too cold in the daytime. And in the daytime, she would turn the thermostat to day. And at night, she would turn it to night. The problem was nobody had explained to her that that was the name of the company. That was not the thermostat setting. So she was very happy to find out the only problem she really had was she was using common sense to set the thing on day in the daytime and set it on night at night. So these are the kind of things I have learned from working with people. Uh, many, many people I talked to uh, were suffering from carbon monoxide poisoning, from little harebrained things that people had told them, do this to the furnace or do that. And, and uh, it's a very enriching experience to have gone through that and realize you don't have to have a lot of money and power, but somebody needs to care about you and take the time to give you advice when you need it. And uh, I think that's pretty much my presentation. If there's any questions, I'm happy to answer them. Yeah, Lonnie, fantastic and uh, <clears throat> very inspirational. Uh, no further questions this time, so maybe we'll jump into, man uh, excuse me, Daphne's section. Oh, Daphne on mute. Sorry about that. Hi, everyone. Daphne Sanchez, she, her pronouns, Executive Director of Kelly Communities Consulting. Thank you so much, Alani, for sharing what does equitable architectural design and what does it look like and why is it important for our communities? So part of kind of architecture design the step before that is program design and policy design. So I'm going to talk a little bit about my experience and my story with um, the, the way my organization does program design. Next slide. So one of the things that is very critical about this initiative from NAACP, and it is something that has resonated with me and, and my participation is the concrete point of there's no such thing as a single issue struggle because we do not live single issue lives. For me as a native New Yorker, as someone who lives in public housing, whose parents lived in public housing and grandparents have lived in public housing, the concept of built environment is not only the place where we sleep and we eat, but it's very much a part of my culture. Next slide. So as I mentioned, my family and I have been three generations in public housing. My, my great-grandparents were living in tenement housing, but tenement housing was completely demolished and public housing was built up. They had an opportunity to live in that public housing. And as my parents and my grandmother had grew up in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, one of the things that we've always known and they've always known is that our buildings might be breaking down, our, we might have a pest infestation, we might have banging pipes, 
Well, one thing is for sure is that our family is here and where our family is, is where our home is at. And no matter what the built environment looks like, we make the best of what we have to continue striding forward. And it's interesting because my parents both, again, born and raised in Brooklyn. My mom was actually raised, I want to say three blocks away from my dad. Uh, and she had temporarily relocated with some family members back in her motherland and then came back to uh, New York and met my dad. And my parents, who, who met each other in the 80s, um, there was a lot of disinvestment in New York City. There was a lot of buildings that were abandoned that were not properly taken care of, they had to um, fend for themselves. And they went through the shelter system, which in the shelter system, if you all don't know, back in the 80s, they would actually recommend families to split up because the mother and the father, the mother with the child would have a faster opportunity to to uh, be placed into an apartment than a three unit family because the assumption is, well, the husband is there and he can provide for the family while they're in the shelter. But despite folks recommending that to my parents, they stuck together and they moved from a shelter in Brooklyn to a shelter in Bronx to the shelter um, in Manhattan back to the Bronx. And they finally got an apartment in public housing in Marcy, Marcy Projects in um, Brooklyn, New York. And it was there that I was born. Um, it was an opportunity that I really don't remember because I was a child when they got the apartment. I was like, uh, I want to say a year and a half old. What I do remember is moving to another development called Cooper Park Houses, which is a development I, I currently live in today. And I remember thinking as I grew up, that this is my home. This is a place that I enjoy living in and there's nothing wrong with it. However, what I did see is when I started going to school, people would say, oh, you know, you, you live in the projects, so you must be dumb or you're gonna drop out of school and all of these other negative stereotypes that had nothing to do with me as an individual, but had to do with my built environment. And it was a moment of conflict internally because my grandparents, my great grandparents and my, and my parents have always said, I should be proud of where I come from. But then when I would step outside of the four walls I lived in, people would um, say I should feel ashamed and I should not talk about it. And it should be something of the unseen. So my parents worked aggressively to each of them were working two jobs. My parents are the uh, very young people in the middle of this uh, photo um, to try to get me out of the projects because that was a, that was the top, the, the trend back in the day. And in 2011, they finally had the opportunity to get a first time homeowner mortgage through Sunny May which is a state um, mortgage agency, and they bought a home. And within a year, not even a year later, they lost that house. Next, next slide. And so, again, there's a lot of assumptions, right, of why a Latino family might lose their home. But in reality, it had nothing to do with 
my parents' organizational skills or financial skills. It has to do with climate change. The only place that my parents were able to afford a home was in Staten Island. Staten Island is an island that is surrounded by water. It's one of the five boroughs of New York City. And it was in October of 2012 that I was sitting in that house with them when we started to hear water rushing. When we started to hear water rushing, my mother came out to me and said, Daphne, there's a flood coming. We need to go. We need to move up to the roof. And me being a typical New Yorker, I was saying, mom, I love you, but you're exaggerating. Calm down. This is, you know, this is not, um, this is New York City. This is not Costa Rica. This is not Puerto Rico. We're fine. My mother decided that I was wrong <laughs> as a mother and she pulls me out of the room. And the moment she pulls me out of the room, the windows open and water starts bursting through it and the floorboards crack. And in a matter of seconds, every single floor, every single window was just rushing. Water was rushing into our home. Being a millennial that I was back in, the t in those days, I, the first thing that I came up to my mind was Facebook. So th the post that you're seeing right now was the Facebook post that I was submitting to folks saying, I need, you know, we need help. Someone call us. We saw our neighbors go out to their cars. We don't know what happened to them. Please call 911. And I remember sitting on that roof thinking to myself, what good is it that I am studying sustainability and energy efficiency and engineering um, at that time in construction management if during Hurricane Sandy, while I was surrounded by water, I could not help myself and I could not help my parents. And also, why is it that the only place they were able to afford a home was in a floodplain? Next slide. So this is our house and my father's car approximately a week to a week and a half after Hurricane Sandy. As you see, the water did not go down. It actually took a long time for that water to go back into um, the beach that's nearby the home. And I remember thinking to myself at this moment, what's the point of fighting a 400-year-old system? What's the point of fighting this narrative of public housing residents are lazy and they don't want to buy a home? If this is the only place we can live and this happens to us. Next slide. So I started getting exhausted and I said, enough is enough, I'm tired. I wanna make sure that I'm able to help my community in a way that is building up wealth for black and brown communities and black and brown folks, specifically folks that live in affordable housing, that may have been a first time homeowner, that is really interested in acquiring that opportunity to build wealth that has traditionally been they have traditionally been excluded from. So in 2017, I started Kinetic Communities Consulting. Next slide. And Kinetic Communities Consultant, what we do is we help people, specifically low-income communities and BIPOC communities, understand what is resiliency, what does resiliency look like, what does energy efficiency look like in your building and in your home, and what are the resources we can connect you to locally so that you can continue owning your home in a sustainable manner 
or you can begin to build a pathway forward to have financial independence from uh, your rental agreement. And so the way we do this is we work with utility and governments to provide these program solutions or policy recommendations, and we use data to develop strategic engagement strategies. What's unique about us is because we have kind of an interdisciplinary uh, knowledge of energy efficiency, engineering, and policy, we're able to work right in the middle of all of our players in order to, to trigger a just transitional change. Next slide. And so what does this look like, right? A lot of this is very, um, it all sounds very theoretical when we talk about program design and policy recommendation. It's 100% community engagement and community engagement and external engagement takes work. So the example I have for you all today is a project that we have called Electrify SI. Electrify SI is a community collaboration project. So the New York State Research Energy Development Authority, also known as NYSERDA, is really interested in electrifying homes, getting homes off of furnaces, getting homes off of um, boilers, and getting them to install these air source heat pumps and mini slits. So we said, that sounds great, but let's take a moment back and let's understand what is the existing ecosystem in our communities and how do we elevate those ecosystems to utilize this technology? We don't want to incorporate a whole new corporation or company to come in and just install this and, and disappear. We want it to come locally. So we were able to do some community engagement uh, workshops where we said, here's a technology, what are your thoughts? And the community voiced concerns about them closing, going out of business. There was a, the concern of large competition with larger firms. Um, and then how can folks learn about the technology when they also have to, when they're also worried about that competition? So what we decided to do is we submitted the proposal to NYSERDA and said, okay, we heard back from the community and they are interested. However, they are very due to prior exploitation of their resources and of their partnerships. And what we decided to do is say 50% of the, of the funds will be administrative for our organization to do workforce development and for the administration of the program. And 50% of the funding will go directly to our partners. And the goals for the programs are to support Black and Latin homeowners to get the air source heat pumps installed, but specifically support Black and Latinx contractors to learn about the technology and to learn about business operations so that they can sustainably move forward and move their business into a space where they're able to do this for their neighbors. And the ultimate goal of doing our programming like this is so when the city or the state decides to say, that's it, no more boilers, no more furnaces, these businesses will continue to operate in their communities and they don't have to be um, closing down because they're trying to catch up to the market. So every, every project has this goal in mind of how do we support BIPOC, low-income, frontline communities to develop their own intergenerational wealth without a third party. Next slide. 
And I, I just want to thank you all for your time and your work. This slide just shows some of the kind of community engagement and um, community participation prog programming that we have done in our past. Daphne, fantastic presentation. Do you have um, partners with air source heat pump suppliers? And maybe what were some of the challenges? Were there were there financial challenges in getting accounts with distributors in New York, with sourcing equipment? Uh, what were some of the challenges for those contractors that were transitioning to be able to help out the homeowners? But I think it's a brilliant program. Absolutely love it. Can you speak to that a little bit? Sure. So the thing, what we did is that we engaged manufacturers and we said, we understand that you want your product out there. In order for your product to be out there, we need you to train these contractors on your product in an equitable manner. So doing the training at the island, not in Manhattan, <laughs> um, doing the training in the evenings and weekends. Yeah. And then we'll work with the contractors to get them approved by NYSERDA to be a certified installer. So we're still, we're still in the process, um, but it, there has been, you know, positive um, experiences because folks are really interested in that opportunity, right? It's an opportunity for those organizations to grow and for the manufacturers is an opportunity for more of their products to be um, in the market. Fantastic. I think we've got some air source heat pump manufacturers that um, we'll connect you with as well. Because it seems That'd be like great. A great, yeah, <laughs> great initiative. Uh, Mandy, are you talking next or? Um, I just want to show this, this slide quickly for those who are interested in getting involved as Lonnie and Daphne have with the NAACP's initiative. But otherwise, um, I do have a couple of questions that that I've been thinking about during this presentation and also want to see if there are any from, from the audience as well. Okay, so one question that I'd, I'd love to ask is in this moment, um, how has the pandemic shifted the way you think about dignity and about building power in terms of your work in sustainable design and development? And people can feel, feel free to use the chat uh, function and just chat to all, all panelists if you have a thought on that. Lania, I'll, I'll, I'll let you go first. Well, the, the, the big thing that has changed me, I got busy raising children. And once they all ran off to go live in New York or Miami, or of course <laughs> my son's still living here, hooked up to the sewer system while they're building a house. Um, I got busy, but I was a real estate agent and I knew the importance of ownership. If you can have it, I don't care whether it's a condo or, or, or whatever you use, you, you need to own part of the country and the whole tax system. Uh, my son learned one thing that's important. Every two years he sells his house, then he gets another house and he gets this chunk of tax-free money. Mm -hmm. 
Now, when I first learned real estate, that's not the way to rule. You got to sell a house once in your lifetime and you got a $125,000 uh, tax uh, uh, exemption. Now you can sell it and get a 250,000 and if you're married, a half a million dollar exemption. Mm -hmm. My son listened to me and so he sells his house every two years and takes all the tax-free money. Now he's having another house built. Mm -hmm. So part of what, what I've learned is what he taught me is I stopped telling people to buy a house and I say buy a house and then sell it in two years, take all the money out tax-free, but also I've been acquiring land and I haven't done anything with it because I was busy raising children. So now I've got a quarter acre in town, an urban area with a, a, a half an acre connected to it. And now rather than looking at, okay, what's the highest return on investment? What's a financial management return on investment I can get if I build X number of units? I'm thinking of what can I do as far as a community garden and a, a, a transitional uh, uh, property to where we can include uh, education with also the ability to provide shelter to people to help empower them so they can have ownership rather than just seeing how much money I can get off X dollars being invested. You put X dollars in and you get X dollars out. Uh, I never looked at that in my rental properties. I, I had five rentals over the years and I sold them off due to family illness or whatever and focused on this, well, I had a piece of land in town and I've got five acres around me. I have land that can be developed, but now I don't think of it just as return on investment. I think of it as how do I impact the community? The community I grew up in, the neighborhood I grew up in, I still own property there. There's a housing shortage here. We have a homeless problem or houseless problem. I don't know, people have different names. They think if you don't have a house, if you call it another name, it's not as bad. It's just as bad when you have no home. And so we need to think about more about caring about people and that's what I'm doing. I'm thinking more about how do you impact the people that live in the neighborhood you grew up in rather than just how do you make X dollars and that's easy said when you've already got checks coming in, going in the bank. But it's not the perspective that a lot of people in the uh, real estate business, the development business, they don't always think about, should I get maximum square footage for the house by making this, the, the stairs shallow and steep? And so somebody can break their neck and fall down the stairs when they get older. Or should I make the house so it's user friendly? and to each generation, the older generation, and the babies and children that come in the house. Uh, so it's changed my perspective on how I want to do what I can do now. And so I, I'm, I'm looking at my impact very differently, even though I still have an understanding that, uh, yeah, I can, I can build something, I can make a profit on it, then I can go out and build something else. It's just whole my, it's changed my whole perspective on the way I view uh, this whole, uh, this whole issue. Fantastic. And with the pandemic, are, are you seeing people want to move out of, I think we're anecdotally seeing a shift of people moving from apartments to wanting to be out 
of perhaps the downtown. Are you starting to see some of that shift because of the pandemic? People wanting to access single family homes or, uh, and are the loans available now versus back when you built your house? Uh, you know, can people, do people have access to financing? They have access to loans. We don't, we don't know, we don't know what's going to happen right now. I've had some, uh, 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 pro black professional real estate people that want to join with the NACP and work on our housing committee because we're very concerned about the fact that there's going to be more homeless people. Wealth is transferred to people already had wealth. There is a loss of massive loss of jobs. Uh, my daughter just moved back to New York after living six months here. We were terrified the baby would get sick. She is only, she was a year old when she got here. Now she's a year and a half. Uh, but in Reno, in analyzing the real estate market, we know there's going to be a change like to the 2008 recession, mm. and that there's going to be a different use for some of the commercial real estate. And there may be uh, large buildings that no longer want that much square footage on the books. And I know a number of companies have done this in New York, uh, but there is going to be a shift in how real estate is used. And hopefully some people recognize it's better for me to house some people than to just have empty space because nobody wants to pay me what I want per square foot. So the demand is going to grow for shelter, mm -hmm. but how I think the, the market is open to creativity now. Mm -hmm. And that uh, I know some of the shopping centers converted uh, some of the older buildings converted to shared artist spaces and things like that. So we're gonna see a big shift in the use of retail property. Some of it may become residential mm -hmm. because there are a lot of services in, in transportation that people need in the urban core that aren't available out in the suburbs. There's no bus that runs out to my house, mm -hmm. but most people don't need a bus. Most people have two to three cars. And, and so I see uh, an opening for a tremendous amount of creativity uh, to people that maybe haven't thought about caring about the users of real estate mm. as much as they have in the past, because we all want to make money. We all want to have a nice home. We all want to have a nice car. But um, our income inequality is exacerbating the challenge of NACP at a whole new level. Uh, the technology is not available to all the families uh, to make sure their kids have access uh, it, it, computers uh, uh, communicating through Zoom and, and all the various platforms. We've had to move so rapidly in the communities of color that it's a jarring effect because all of us are not really skilled at using these technologies. You're used to telephone and having face-to-face -face meetings and working with our faith-based institutions that have been challenged. And they're mm -hmm. some of the voices that need to be out there encouraging people to, to take care of themselves. You've got to stay alive during this pandemic. The mm -hmm. focus has changed and the urgency has changed, but I see the opportunity uh, because this is not the first pandemic. Mm -hmm. I went to the Bible because people start bringing up the Bible as the end of the world. I, ah, no, I don't think you're going to be around at the end of the world, but you need to read Isaiah. You need to read this. You need to read that. There's been pandemics before. Mm -hmm. People are still here. In fact, the population growth has been exponential over the last uh, 200 years. We need shelter 
and we need creativity and we need people to rethink, maybe sit down and meditate on mm -hmm. how can I help change and build a new future. Uh, that's what I'm seeing. Personally, it hasn't been a big change with me because I've been very blessed with a large home, uh, 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 all the opportunities that a lot of people don't have. So I, I see, I see just a great opportunity now. Uh, I just hope they come up with a vaccine for this pandemic because <laughs> yeah. it is very difficult for a lot of people, and it's going to get worse when the wealthy people, the hedge fund, starts coming in and buying up housing, mm. buying up real estate. And the people that have will have more and the people that don't have will have less. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like what you said there about, I mean, I think we saw the business roundtable in the United States say, we need to th start thinking more about stakeholders. And I, I think what you're suggesting is that within the real estate construction industry, we need to think about our community stakeholders better as well. Um, I have a question both, both for Lonnie and for you, Mandy. How do we bring more BIPOC people into the home construction industry because there are so many benefits uh, we need representation from those voices what's the best way to outreach mandy and i are doing some work around workforce development maybe start with you lonnie and then mandy you can add your thoughts but how do we bring more uh, folks into the industry and create opportunity for them i i I think um, I think the the idea I had uh, when they were um, and I lived in a neighborhood where they tore down the whole neighborhood. Our house was the last house standing because it was part of the urban renewal project, and I don't think they wanted to kick. I think we were up in nine or ten children at that time, and uh, we lived across the street from the fire station. The fire station was the only building left standing in our house. And I guess they would just didn't want to kick out all these uh, poor kids. And, and um, I think education is, uh, educational opportunity is a real key. We, it used to be 120 years ago, who the division of labor that determined who was working on the manufacturing floor and one out of, I think, one out of every four children were working in a factory who runs the, the operation and who owns the operation. And we had these huge monopolies of wealth. And I see we're going through this new Gilded Age where we're doing the same thing, except it's not the division of labor, it's the division of education. Who decides who is educated and who decides who decides? We need to recognize we don't need another Gilded Era. We don't need gigantic silos of wealth and people that are so powerful and wealthy that even those that know technology don't even understand how they're being manipulated. And, and I think that the power comes with education. Uh, our education system was designed uh, for a different environment. And we've got to make sure that the young people who aren't from wealthy families have a, a, a better opportunity to be part of the new economy, whether how technological that will be or not. But I, I think that this whole issue of who decides and who decides who decides 
is very important. We have to empower more people. We can't have a growing democracy if people don't participate in that democracy. And, the, and they think their vote doesn't count. And they don't realize the reason they think their vote doesn't count is because somebody in Russia, a 400 pound fat guy sitting in Russia at the Internet Research Agency is trying to convince them their vote doesn't count and they should be out uh, uh, destroying the community rather than helping to design and build it. Uh, we, I think, are enamored sometimes with bright and shiny objects. And uh, I think too many people are out there thinking, oh, I've got this great computer in my pocket. I can contact anybody. I can get 100 people to come out to a rally. But yet, they don't really know what's driving this thing. Why are they collecting all that data on you? Uh, uh, are your children learning? Uh, do, do we, we need to uh, look at a new paradigm of how income inequality is affecting every aspect of the work of the NAACP and many other organizations. Uh, we cannot continue this way because greater um, countries or, or whatever you, dynasties have fallen because of income inequality. And that's one of the first thing that happens. You have anarchy when you have uh, an unfair system and people just get tired of it and they're frustrated and they don't know what to do. So that's a long answer to a short question. I'm sorry. Mandy, do you have some final uh, or some thoughts to add to that? And maybe you can bring us home. Yeah, sure. I'd, I'd just offer a couple of tried and true policy solutions that we've seen work. Uh, in addition to the kind of commitments that a company on its own can make and do proactively, uh, we are constantly advocating for local and targeted hiring policies to require or incentivize businesses to hire from specific local areas or from specific populations. In particular, fair chance hiring uh, that, that allows people who have um, been subjected to the, to the criminal justice system and incarceration not to be discriminated against for that experience. Um, as well as proactively going out and, and looking to benefit typically underemployed populations like those who have been incarcerated before. Um, we also are constantly advocating for, for people to set provisions around minority business enterprises, women business enterprises, disadvantaged business enterprises, and those who actually find it uh, to be really challenging to even get those, those um, those certifications where, where there are barriers to do so. Um, we also, you know, in addition to, to these kinds of policies, we are really interested in making sure that the kind of jobs that are available in, in these industries pay living wages, um, that they, uh, that projects are getting to the point where they're actually proactively offering project labor agreements and community workforce agreements, um, supporting union labor. Um, and, and then, you know, that's just the very beginning of the conversation. Those are just kind of the fundamentals. Um, there's so much more, but I'll just say that we, we've been posting resources um, and we'll, we'll actually be re releasing a policy report soon that goes into a lot of this and um, 
basically lays out that, you know, the solutions aren't new. They're, they're pretty, they're pretty fundamental and they're pretty basic. And we just need the will, the political will and the, the kind of collectivity and the collective mindset needed to get there. Great. Well, one effort that uh, Mandy and I have put together is we have the EBA summit coming up on September the 29th and through the EBA next gen scholarship program, we are offering diversity and minority candidates scholarships to attend that summit. It'll give them a great chance to be around uh, kind of the high performance home building profession to learn, maybe develop some mentorships or some ability to uh, get great mentorship from others. Uh, there are certifications available. So if you or you know of anyone looking for a scholarship, they can contact Mandy or myself and we're happy to provide that information. Because I think when I look at residential construction, we need something like 1.5 million people to come into the industry in the next 10 to 15 years. This is the first recession where home builders have not participated. Home building, uh, we have home builders that are up 70% since March. And I think our usual as home builders was, we're, we get crushed every recession. And this is the first kind of, they're talking about the K-shaped recession. So we need people now, we need people that can transition. We need to be open to people from all types of backgrounds. Um, and, and I think they are great paying jobs as well. And, and people don't know about it. And then Lonnie, I love what you said. Like people don't know about that scam, but you know, you come in as a, in construction or as a project manager or and learn how to become a builder to start to be able to take advantage of some of those things like building your own home every two years and getting that money tax-free. It's incredible. Uh, it's incredible uh, way to uh, foster entrepreneurship as well. So uh, with that said, I do want to promote, I will be back uh, Thursday tomorrow at 2 PM with William Ranson from DuPont. He'll be talking about over under the best options for installing a weather resistant barrier and continuous exterior insulation. So join me for that. But today, uh, Mandy, I wanna thank you so much. Lonnie, it was such a pleasure to hear you talk. And then Daphne's message was so powerful. I think we tend to think of climate refugees as being on some island in the Pacific and they're right in Staten Island. And I think the Electrify SI program is an incredible one that uh, uh, hopefully some people will outreach to Daphne around that. So thank you all again for today and your time and uh, bringing your information to all of us at EBA. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.